0: Can I going to have Stephen, one of our deacons, come up, Stephen Heindel, and he's going to read scripture for us. Uh, if you would, open your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to
1: read verses 1 through 11. If you would stand as we read that. Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I may attain the resurrection from the dead.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it contains. We thank you for the truths. And Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that our hearts would be in tune to you, that we would seek after you wholeheartedly, that the things that so easily distract us would be cast aside. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Please be seated. Philippians. It's a book about joy, and as I've studied and prepared sermons, I'm not sure i found a lot of joy in preparing some of these sermons because they've been extremely convicting. I uh, shared, and I'm going to do a shameless plug as well, for a reminder that 9.15, if you can make it on a Sunday morning, we're just going to pray. Before the service, we're going to try and uphold the uh, the service in our church in prayer. But as I was with them this morning, thinking through even this text, and I thought about this morning before I even left my home, and I talked about talked about it with my wife. And and um, man, I I shared in the prayer group that this is a sermon I don't think I would want to preach, but I am also excited because it's a sermon that I think absolutely has to be preached. And as we come through Philippians, there's just been this has been one of the most challenging studies I've done as I've walked through a book expositorily, um, just looking at the content and maybe it's because as Paul got, Uh, older uh, in his ministry, he became more spiritually mature, and he began to write uh, more challenging things. Maybe it's the nature of Philippi and and what they were going through, and and it fits in my life, whatever it might be. Uh, As I studied it this week, I thought, man, I have not a single leg to stand on in teaching this. And it got me to thinking, and, and, you know, the basic premise of what we want to look at this morning is the value of Jesus Christ. How can we put a value on Him and, and what does that look like? I thought of, you know, uh, to, to tie it into today with Mother's Day, you know, we look at, you know, whether you are a mother or not, I can promise you we all have a mother or else your name is Jesus Well, and even he had a mother, Um, but you are here and you have had a mother and you think back to whether it was a rough childhood or not, there is a value of your mother, no matter what. And for those of us who have had the blessing of a mother that we have such an intimate relationship, we think of the value of our mother and it is infinite, right? We, we put so much in that and we examine it and we think of the value of, of what being a mother means to me as a son and, and how that value um, gives me an appreciation for my mother. And so we look at this text, and I want us to think through the value of Jesus Christ, um, not just as a church, but in our own personal lives. What does that look like? And I think Paul lays out a, a, a very a uh, compelling and difficult challenge for us. So we want to look through this this morning, and, we'll, and, and we're going to just kind of walk through the text. It starts in, in verse 1, and, and I apologize if you have ESV. I've got a different translation here because I left my ESV at home. Uh, it's the Holman Christian Standard. I'm sure it's still the Word of God. Uh, in addition, verse 1, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord to write to you again about this, this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Pause there. Uh, I had my staff commenting, uh, we were commenting earlier as we were preparing for Mother's Day, looking ahead and thought this is a great passage for Mother's Day. Talking about dogs and those who mutilate the flesh and uh, thought, Man, this would really fit well um, for Mother's Day. Um, but I want us to walk through this, and I really do feel like there is some value here. We, we teach you the word regardless of what day it is. Um, but the first thing Paul wants to share with us as we walk through this passage, and I want us to keep in mind that this is a book about uh, primarily our joy in the Lord. And so it is interesting that Paul first issues a caution here. There is a caution And this caution has a couple of things. First, it is a reminder. Paul says, uh, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That is our reminder. Rejoice in the Lord. It is the objective of our faith that when we realize what the Lord has done in our life, we ought to be filled with rejoicing, right? I mean, that's one of the things that Paul is going through in this book. He's saying this is what true Christian joy is all about, that we would rejoice in the Lord. Maybe this is part of why sometimes this book has been difficult for me. As I walk through difficult stages of life, you look at it and you say, "Okay, Lord, I see what you're saying, that, that my joy comes not from my circumstances, but in you. And so Paul says, uh, uh, I want to remind you. And and by the way, he says, I I write this and he says to write to you again is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Paul says, here's the caution. I want you to remember our goal, our walk of faith is about rejoicing in the Lord. And I'm going to remind you. Because there's nothing wrong with reminders. We need constant reminders. As a man, I need to be reminded of things that I am supposed to do at home because I forget them. It might have something to do with the several concussions I've had, but I'm not going to blame it on that. I'm going to blame it on my fact that I forget things very quickly. We need to be reminded. So, so as we walk through the passage basic exposition here exegesis is that paul is going to remind us with a caution rejoice in the lord because we need to hear it we need to be reminded of it because when we begin to get discouraged it's almost like the psalmist in psalm 42 where he's pepping himself up he says uh why are you so downcast O my soul put your hope in god remember 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 these things because this is going to get really and, and i'm and i'm I'm warning you right now, this is going to get intense. Because it was intense for me. It's a reminder. Rejoice in the Lord. But then he goes on, he says, he, he not only gives us a reminder, but he gives us a regard. He says, watch out. Watch out for dogs and for evil workers and watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Watch out for the things that creep in and cloud or push out the Gospel. Because they will steal our joy. When things of this world begin to Come in and and cloud out the gospel, the gospel truth that we have, that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. When these things come in, they will creep in and they will push away our joy. And so Paul, in writing to the Philippians and, you know, just a basic uh, 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 context here, the uh, People had come into the church, just like all the churches that Paul had preached at. And, and these guys, by the, they were called Judaizers, would come in and they would say that here's the truth. The gospel is Jesus plus you have to also obey the works of the Old Testament law. And so they would add things to the gospel. And so Paul says to us, watch out. And, and I find it interesting. You could kind of break this down into three categories. Watch out for people. People like these Judaizers, he says, watch out for the dogs. And it's an ironic use in the terminology here that he calls them dogs. Because if, if you uh, think through what the, the Jewish culture, they would have looked at the Gentiles and viewed them as dogs. And so now Paul flips the script and says those Jews who think that they are something special, they are dogs. Watch out for them because they will try and get you to do things on top and they will corrupt the teachings of Jesus Christ. There are, there are the, the second thing he says, watch out for evildoers, evil workers. Not just people, but pleasures. Pleasures of this life come in, they creep in, and they take us away from the truth of the gospel because we become so uh, focused on fulfilling myself rather than understanding the reality of the gospel. Pleasures. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Watch out for philosophies that come in, thoughts and ideas. Um, There was a, uh, around the 15th century, there was a group of monks that began to to teach this idea of of holiness, is is what's called aestheticism, where you would beat your flesh in order to uh, take out the, the sinfulness of my flesh so that I might be more holy with God the mutilators of the flesh would come in and they would say, you need to, to realize that your flesh is sinful and there is truth that. And so therefore, you have to do these things in order to be more holy. So Paul says, watch out, remember. Remember the objective is to rejoice in the Lord for what He has done. Watch out for these things. And, and then he offers a reason. Look at the end, verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God We boast in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the reason. The flesh is what draws us away from the Lord. And it will always diminish our joy. If we paused right here and ended our sermon, this is what I want you to take away from this first part as Paul is reminding us. The attachments of this world will always draw us away from Jesus Christ. The attachments of this world, that's why Paul said at the uh, uh, last chapter, he says that there is a gift of suffering because suffering is what draws those things out away from us. It's the the, uh, purification, refining the gold and the silver by putting us through the fires to refine. to to remove the impurities. And so Paul is saying, hey, rejoice in the Lord. Remember, watch out for these things because as we become attached to this world, as we become more desiring of the things of this world and we we draw into those things, the idea of Jesus grows distant and farther. And so Paul offers this word of caution, but then he goes on and he offers a challenge. And and the, the text here is amazing to me. Paul says in verse four, although I have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul lays down the challenge here. The the wording in the original language literally means if anyone out there, anybody out there thinks that they are more holy and have more ground to stand on, I challenge them to come to the front and, and put it to the test. I've got more than anybody is what Paul says. I have more. I uh, always laugh when I see this uh, around Mother's Day, this job application. I don't know, maybe you've seen it. Um, the application reads, must be able to work 135 plus hours a week, willingness to foregrow any breaks, must have a PhD in psychology or real life equivalent, must have crisis skills Uh, crisis management skills, ability to manage a minimum of 10 to 15 projects at one time, ability to communicate at all levels, basic to advanced, ability to work in a chaotic environment, excellent interpersonal skills and a collaborative approach, demonstrated knowledge and experience in negotiating, counseling and culinary arts, unlimited patience, understanding of social media, mobile devices and video games, finance and medicine, And by the way, the salary is zero dollars. Infinite opportunities, though, for personal growth and rewards. Mothers, you have a list of things that blows most people out of the water. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's the profit. Here's what I have going for me. And let's look through this. What does Paul say? Here's the list Paul says, although I have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he starts out and he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul lists out for us uh, five things. Five things. Number one, he tells us his pedigree. He was of the people of Israel. Paul was of the chosen people, right? The nation of Israel. They were called out from the world that God spoke to Abraham and said, you will be the father of my people. Paul was born into that. And it says on the eighth day, he was circumcised. What he was saying is, I was born into it. I, from the very beginning, I had a family heritage. My pedigree is that of the chosen people. I was a Jew. I had family heritage. But then Paul goes on, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had his prestige. Paul was of not just the nation of Israel, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. You realize that the tribe of Benjamin was the ones that remained faithful to David, King David, when he uh, was kicked out and and, and, uh, his son uh, uh, stepped in. Do you realize the tribe of Benjamin was the tribe from which the very first king of Israel was selected? And you know what his name was? Saul. Hmm. What was Paul's name before his conversion? Saul. He was most likely named after the very first king of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. This tribe carried weight. If you look at Israelite history, read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the tribe of Benjamin always carried weight. He had his, uh, 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 not just his pedigree, But his prestige, he was of the right social status. Then you have his position. It says, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. And we hear the word Pharisee, and we think right away, what? Hypocrite. But you have to remember that in Paul's day, Pharisees were viewed with utmost regard. Because they were students of the word. They were scholars of the word. They were ones who knew the word inside now. They weren't just viewed as these hypocrites. They were viewed, and and if you look at at Paul's position, a Pharisee, he had biblical knowledge. He was top educated. He was he studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, who would have been the chief priest. I mean, he had elite opportunity. He knew Greek. He knew Hebrew. He knew Latin. He knew the culture when he went to uh, to Greece and, and in Athens, he he knew their their poets. He knew their 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 uh, history. He was a well-known student. Paul was this elite person. His position, he was in line to be a part of the Sanhedrin. This is something that is rare and exclusive. He was also, by birth, a Roman citizen. Paul had elite status. So Paul's looking around. He says, guess what? I am an Israelite chosen by God, and I am also of the tribe of Benjamin. My prestige allows me to be upper echelon. and my position, I was a Pharisee. I knew the Bible better than anyone. I and, and this isn't just Paul bragging. This is Paul just stating the facts of who he was and what privileges he had been given. But not only that, Paul goes on. He says, as to zeal, Persecuting the church. Now, as Christians, we look at that and say, Man, that's a that's a a negative thing, right? But here's what Paul is saying. In regards to religious activity, my practices were zealous. I did what I thought was in the best interest of God all the time. My practices in regards to zeal, I persecuted the church because I believed it was what God desired me to do. He was zealous, he followed the rules. As well, and listen to this last one regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Blameless. His performance was he followed the rules and he had a moral life. I mean, you, you catch in the list here. Here's Paul's prophet. This is what things I have going for me. I was born in the right family. I had the right family. I was born into elite upper echelon. I had a social status. I was a Pharisee. I had biblical knowledge. I was religious. I had religious activity because I was zealous for God and I had a moral life that when people looked at me and they examined the laws and they examined what I did, they had nothing to accuse me of. That's what Paul's saying. This is his prophet and there's a problem with all of this. And this is where the text... Flips upside down. It's very convicting. The problem, all these things are good things. They're all good things. It's good to have family. It's good to have a good family and a family heritage. It's good to have social status that when people see you, they recognize you as an upstanding person and there is recognition there. It is good to have biblical knowledge, right? To know the word. It is good to have that. And it's good to be zealous for God and to have religious activity and to do the things for God that he asks of us. It is good to have a, a, a moral life that is, is pursuing after a purity, These are all good things. You say, so, Nate, what's the problem? The problem is that it was not the bad things that kept Paul from Jesus. It was the good things. Brothers and sisters, this is important and you need to let it sink in. It was not the bad things that were keeping Paul from Jesus Christ. It was the good things that were keeping Paul from Jesus Christ. It is impossible, and it is totally possible for somebody to have a good family, to have a moral life, to have religious activity, to have a a, a good social standing. It is possible to have all these things and not know Jesus Christ. It is possible to walk through life attending church and giving money to the poor and to do good things and for your life at the end to be declared a complete waste. That is scary. I hope and pray as I walk through this. Man, I just kept walking through this text this week and I kept thinking about this. It is possible. Because notice what Paul says. He says, but everything that was gained to me, this list, I count to be lost. It's possible to serve in your church as an elder and a deacon. It is possible to do all these things and for all of those things to be counted as loss when we get before the Father in heaven. And so Paul does some counting for us. You notice in the text, Paul counts three times for us. Three times he uses the word count. I think of raising my children... And one of the things that I think of is I have 17, 18, I don't know how many years of influence. I want to make it count for something. When we live our life, we have so many days, right? We want to make our life count for something. The thing I always hear, and and I don't care whether the social things are true or not, the thing I always hear about millennials is they just want to make their life count for something, which is very applaudable. And so when we get through life and as we walk through life, we ought to be asking ourselves, what counts? If we can do all these things and, and we can get to the end of our life and we have done these things, if we had a good family, we've had social status, we've had uh, religious activity, we've had uh, moral life and we've done all these things and we get to the end and those don't count for anything, the question we ought to be asking ourselves is, what counts? Right? Right? What counts? Listen to what Paul says. He says, I count everything that was gained to me, I consider loss. Then he repeats himself. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung or rubbish so that I might gain Christ. There is an emphasis here. The emphasis is as verse seven, whatever gain loss. Indeed, in verse eight, indeed, everything is loss. Verse eight, count them as rubbish. And, And this was, by the way, that Greek word rubbish or dung, depending on what translation. This was a hard word for the translators because it's a very vulgar word. And dung and garbage aren't sufficient for what Paul meant, It was a dirty diaper. Paul says everything here. Somebody got it. (laughs) The translators were almost embarrassed in trying to figure out what word to use. Because Paul used a very vulgar word in describing what all of these things meant to him. And then he lays out the equation for us. And the equation is this. Anything without Christ is lost. Anything without Christ is lost. What changed for Paul was not because of what he had or what he had accomplished in life. What changed for Paul was that on the road to Damascus he met Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing story if you read through Acts chapter 9 and you, you read the account, and, and I'm amazed. I was even thinking about it. I listened to a sermon this week on this passage, and, and I looked at, at Acts chapter 9, and, and and we read in there that, that Paul was sent blindly into uh, Damascus, and, and there uh, Ananias was to go to him. Do you know what it, the Bible says that that Jesus told Ananias to tell Paul tell him what things he must suffer for my sake what what does that conversation entail i mean he tells him Tell him what things he must suffer. Did, did Ananias, was he given some insight into what Paul's life was going to be like? That he would be beaten, shipwrecked, uh, stoned? That he would have all these things, imprisonments, and, and all these things happen to him? I mean, we don't know. I mean, it could be speculation, but it says, Tell him what things he must suffer for my name's sake. And as, as Paul is blind, contemplating, Jesus Christ, I have made a mistake in following after the wrong gospel. And what amazes me is that Paul is told what things he must suffer. And from that moment on, Paul's life changed. Philippians 3 means this. that We discover that Jesus Christ is an infinite treasure chest of joy. And everything else in life is lost compared to him. This is why it was so hard for me, because I start, started to think about that. I think about what things this means, right? Does that mean my family, my wife and my children are lost? I mean, these are, these are tough questions to walk through. What, what Is anything excluded in this? that everything is to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And then I began to self-reflect on that. Why am I even asking these questions? I'll tell you why. Because I hold on to them tightly as value to me. You say, well, Pastor Nate, are you saying that your wife and kids aren't valuable to you? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm telling you what Paul says, and what Paul says is this, that everything in comparison to the surpassing weight of the glory of Jesus Christ is lost. And Paul says it is done. That sunk in hard this week. Not only is everything lost without Him, Paul says everything is worth losing for Him. This isn't a message I hear in the American church very often. That everything compared to Jesus is lost, and everything that we have is worth losing for Jesus. I mean, if we could just pause and and think about that. I mean, is this just Paul, right? It's just Paul. He, he suffered a lot of things. Paul, it's easy for him to say those types of things, right? It's not just Paul, though. because there, There's a balance, of course, we understand, but the reality is that Jesus says, if anyone should come after me, he must hate father and mother and child and deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It was Jesus who said in in Matthew chapter 13, this incredible parable that I would encourage you guys to go back through and look at sometime, and he talks about it in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 45. He tells us two parables. He says in 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his I want you to think through this. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then verse 45, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. That when he finds one, he goes and he sells all he has so that he can buy that pearl. Did did you hear what what Jesus says in verse 44, that He goes and and not just begrudgingly gives up everything so He can find that treasure and buy that field, it says that He does it in joy. I read this and I'm like totally convicted because that's not me. Jesus said, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his very soul? Brothers and sisters, the greatest joy, the only thing in life worth pursuing is Jesus Christ. Well, it's just Jesus and Paul, right? No, you look at Job. The book of Job tells this incredible story, and and when you stop and think through the reality of Job, Job lost everything. He lost his possessions. He lost all of his children. He even lost his health. And in this incredible passage later on in the book of Job, in Job chapter 19, Job says this incredibly mind-blowing thing. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see my God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. In spite losing everything, Job says, my heart longs for this truth that I know that my Redeemer lives, and one day I will see Him. If only our minds were transformed in this way. If you flip back one chapter, you see another example. Philippians chapter 2 at the end, it talks about this guy, really well-known name. I'm surprised that more children aren't named after him. Epaphroditus. But in verse, the very last verse of chapter 2, it says of Epaphroditus, verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. That word there, risking. It's this fabulous Greek word. I'm going to teach it to you, if I can pronounce it. parabolousiamenos. 16 letters, really easy. You know what it means? To gamble. To gamble. Put it in context. Epaphroditus gambled his life for Jesus. Epaphroditus gambled his life for Jesus. It was Jim Elliot who said, He is no fool who gives, who, who, who is willing to risk. Losing what he has for that which he could never lose. So there's an emphasis here. Paul's emphasis is count your life. Take account. Look through what is your life. Take stock of it. Evaluate it. Understand it. And count it. And know this. Here's the equation. Here's the algebraic equation. I was terrible at algebra. I'm, I'm, I hate math. I'm probably one of the few who got an, a degree in computer And only took one math class. Um, But here's the basic math for you anything without Jesus, loss. And anything you have is worth losing for Jesus. And so there is an endeavor here that Paul lays out for us. This should be our life calling in verses. Listen to what Paul says. He says, uh, because of Him, middle of verse 8, because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. And then verse 9, ought to be our endeavor and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. And I'm going to, tell you why i don't like this translation already because i don't like how this verse says my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death assuming that i will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead paul's goal was that he may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings that's our endeavor in life Pursue Him as your most treasured possession because the only thing that counts, notice what He says, that I may know Him. The Greek word is ginosko, that I might through experience know Him. That knowledge comes from having been and having done and having participated. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That I might know what the power of His resurrection does to a transformed life. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. So that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Brothers and sisters, so many people live their life, and when you get to the end of your life, what is the thing that should be creeping through our minds? Did it count for something? Or was it a waste? What's the application? Do I know Jesus? Incredible passage in Hebrews chapter 12. I I know I've referenced it multiple times through Philippians, but Hebrews chapter 12. Consider Him looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before us endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such suffering from sinful men so that you do not become weary and fainthearted. Pursue Him. Do I know Him? If you are here today and you do not know Jesus, your life is lost. It is wasted. That sounds like a harsh thing to say, but it is the reality. When everything is stripped away, when this earth is melted, and when there is nothing left, the only thing that counts is Jesus Christ, and did I know Him? Did I ginosko and have a personal relationship with him? Was I transformed by the power of his resurrection? Am I in him? So that by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. When your life comes to an end, our heartbeats, it has been uh, uh, very well said, is the heartbeat, it is a drumbeat of a death march. That one day it will cease. The statistics are accurate that say 10 out of 10 people die. There is the reality. And so we must turn our eyes to Jesus as that wonderful hymn says, Turn your eyes to Jesus and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Is he my treasure above all else? Am I seeking to know him and to make him known? What do I spend my hours doing? This has been the challenge of me this week. You want to know what's valuable to you? What do you spend your time doing? A study, you know, they do it every year. It's fascinating um, what Americans spend their times on. Three top categories. Work, sleep, leisure. Leisure. Work, sleep, leisure. You know that the average American spends five hours a day watching television. Then the rest of the time we spend at work or sleeping. And I'm not saying that work is a bad thing, but why do we work overtime and overtime and overtime? Is it so that we can acquire more possessions? We say, well, i got to work so that I can provide. Do we really need to? I'm asking this for my own sake as I've been evaluating this. That why do I spend so much time working? Why do I spend so much time training for a race that that I'm not gonna sit here and and disparage, but, but I spend my life doing these things and I get to the end and I'm like, God, what was it for? What was it for? When I get to heaven, when God stands before me and He says, how did you proclaim the truth that changed your life in an instant? And I am wholly convicted by that. And I don't want anybody to feel guilt or shame. That's not my intent. This is the the expression of my heart right now. That as I walk through this passage and I see Paul and I say, that is not me. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. No, my goal is comfort, wealth, and pleasure. And that's the idolatry of my heart comfort, wealth, and pleasure. And I want my testimony to be that of the disciples that when they were brought before the Sanhedrin after the Holy Spirit had radically entered into them and they proclaimed in, in marvelous different tongues the reality of the gospel and they were brought before educated and learned men in Acts chapter four. And these men share the truth of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means and how it has transformed them. These educated and learned men of the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, the experts of the law looked at them and they said, these guys are idiots, but We are impressed. And what were they impressed by? That they had been with Jesus. That they had been with Jesus. That Paul, towards the end of his ministry, after he returns uh, from his journeys and he's heading back to Jerusalem, and again, he's counting, he's counting all the time. He comes before the elders of Ephesus and they say to him, please don't go to Jerusalem, don't go. And, And Paul says in this incredibly moving speech, he says, listen to me, I know that when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to face imprisonment and trial and the loss of all things. And he says in verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. That I might finish the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, the gospel of peace. And then the last one that I want to be a testimony of my life there's this little obscure verse that has meant a lot to me from the Mount of Transfiguration, the account where Jesus stands before the disciples. Peter, James, and John. And, and, and we can read through that in Matthew chapter 17, this incredible story of how uh, Jesus was transfigured before them. And then at the end, they fall down on the ground and they are in fear. And Jesus touches them and he says, fear not. And then in Matthew chapter 17, verse 8, there's this little verse and it says, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw none but Jesus. That's what I want people to say about Nate. Nate. That at the end of my life, when people proclaim with me in a casket before them or whatever, I told my wife she has to stuff me, taxidermy me. You can, you know, put me on the stage or something. (laughs) Permanent influence. I want people at my funeral to say, we saw none but Jesus in him. That I count my life not dear unto myself, but I count this, that all things, my family, as much as I love them and I will love them, and I'm never asking anybody, and I don't think Paul is asking anybody to cast them aside, to, to set them aside, but Paul says that we should love Jesus in such a pursuit that they are lost compared to knowing Him. And that the pursuits of our life should always only ever be to see the greatest treasure right before our very eyes. And when we do, the things of earth will pass away and we will realize that all that we have been given is loss compared to Him. That's a tough challenge for me. And I have to deal with the idols of my heart, comfort, wealth, and pleasure. But thankfully, the more we know Jesus and the more we dig into Him, the less valuable those things become. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that we have the greatest treasure in this life and in the life to come. Father, I pray that our hearts would be to pursue You, that our life motivation would be that our life counts for something because we sought You. That we sought to know You in the power of Your resurrection and to share in Your sufferings. And Father, I pray for any of us in here today that has put things before You. Lord, I pray that we would be good stewards of the things that you have given us. Our families. Finances. But Lord, I pray that those would not be our God. Because we have one true God. Who loves us in such an incredible way that he said, I will die for you. So Lord, I pray that we would make that our pursuit. And if there is anyone in here today that does not know Jesus... And they realize that their life is counted loss, that it is a waste. Lord, I pray that today that they would know that they can come to a savior who cries out for them, come, come. Today is the day of salvation. He hears you. And he loves you. And Lord, I pray for us, your people that we would turn our eyes to You and that we would seek after You with our whole heart, willing to suffer the loss of all things for You. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.